mistake of starting a diet the week before Easter, but I'm, I'm resurrecting my diet this week, so it's good. That was a lame joke, wasn't it? It was good. I'm really proud of how lame that joke was. Uh, hey, so turn in your Bibles if you got them, uh, or if you need one, there's some of the seats underneath there. Um, we're going to be picking up in Acts 19 and verse 8, Acts 19, verse 8, so you can uh, follow along. Um, and this is like a really uh, fascinating uh, little section of, of Scripture. I would say it's actually like kind of the climax of the book of Acts. It's kind of where the book of Acts is building to, is this little section of Scripture right here and Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Because um, we're going we're gonna to dig in, we'll get into the text in a second, but like, it just occurs to me, I was just doing some studying for this, and um, how cool it is what's going on. Like, and it's just like a couple verses that we're covering. But this ministry in the book of Ephesus, like during this time that Paul is in Ephesus, he writes the letters of First and Second Corinthians. Um, you know, there's like significant uh, work being done. And um, it's interesting, I was reading one commentator, and he was talking about sort of how it's strange that this... this uh, two-year ministry uh, that he has in Ephesus is just like so quickly summarized, right? Because what we see from the context of the books of First, first and Second Corinthians is that Paul is really enduring a lot of difficulty, and this is like a very momentous time in his ministry, and he talks about how he's feeling near the point of death in 2 Corinthians. He's talking about how like there's stuff going on as he's working there in, in Ephesus that's just wild and oppressive. And he, he talks between the difference between the way he talks about the power of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. He's clearly like doing some deep spiritual work. In 2 Corinthians, he just starts to praise about all how, how when he's so weak and when he's so beaten down, he's come to the realization that it's in those moments that he is strongest. Because it's in those moments that the Holy Spirit just comes in and empowers him all the more. Like, so there's some powerful stuff going on here in this little tiny passage. And not only is it momentous probably for, for Paul's ministry, but for the ministry of reaching the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world at the time, like the stuff going on in Ephesus and, and the work, the discipleship work that Paul is doing, it really makes a difference. Okay, so all that said, just kind of framing it, we're going to pick up in Acts 19, just as Paul has arrived in, in the city of Ephesus. It's a city um, in modern-day Turkey, um, in the uh, western section of Turkey. And the last uh, two weeks ago, you know, before Easter, last week we talked about Easter because it's Easter and you got to talk about Easter. Um, but two weeks ago we were in, in the book of Acts and Paul had just arrived in Ephesus and he meets this group of, of disciples who... Um, have been baptized into John's baptism, a baptism of repentance, but they never were baptized into the name of Jesus, and they never had, like, the Holy Spirit, uh, be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And we talked about what that looks like and what that means and all that stuff, and um, that was a really good time. Um, but we're picking up here right after that. So there's, like, no time. He, he arrives in Ephesus. He meets these people. He, he prays for them. They're baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's wild. It's awesome. And then immediately we get into where we're at right now. So verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue, and he spoke boldly over a period of three months, arguing and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So he comes in, he meets these disciples, he prays for them, they receive the Holy Spirit, and then he goes, enters the synagogue, and over the course of three months, which is a lot of, you know, that's a long sermon series. I mean, I know I, I can do long sermon series, and three months is a long time. Um, you know, so he, he goes into the synagogue, um, and it's actually... We, we, we should note, it's not his first time in that synagogue. In uh, Acts 18, 19, and 22, 21, he says, 
he, he, uh, he has, actually goes to Ephesus prior to this. And I have a little map here kind of showing what he did. Um, he had gone, he was over in Corinth, and he goes over to Ephesus, but he's just passing through Ephesus on his way down to Jerusalem, right? And we, 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 we read about the first time he passed through uh, in Acts 18, it says this, when he had reached Ephesus, he, he left them there, that is his friends he was traveling with, uh, but he entered the synagogue and he debated with the Jews. So the same synagogue he's in this morning. Uh, he entered the synagogue, he debated with the Jews, and when they asked him to stay for a longer time, he declined and he said farewell and added, I'll come back to you again if God wills. And then he set sail from Ephesus and he goes down to Jerusalem. And what happens is over the course of probably several months, maybe even up to a year, he goes down to Jerusalem, spends some time there, and then makes his way north of the land route back to Ephesus, and then arrives in Ephesus because he had said, if God wills, I'm going to come back. I'm going to continue on in this ministry. So he, uh, he comes back, um, he gets into town, and he's, you know, he had been reasoning with them before. And then he comes back, and for, for three months... He starts to explain to them. And what does it say he does? He, he says he was, first time he was reasoning, and I'm, I'm going to argue that maybe there's some significance to these words. First time he was reasoning with them, he stayed a little while, said he'd come back. And then the second time he comes arguing and persuading them about the kingdom of God. For three months, he's arguing and persuading with them about the kingdom of God. And I think that's interesting. I think it's interesting because I get to talk about Jesus pretty much every single week, right? I get to talk about the gospel every single week. Uh, but I'm not sure that I would describe myself always as persuading people about the kingdom of God, right? I mean, I'm not sure if that's like the language I would use. I'm not sure if that's like the, the way I would think about what I'm doing. Like I talk about Jesus and I'm usually talking about having faith in Jesus, right? That seems to be the gospel to me, have faith in Jesus. I talk about repentance, talk about discipleship, talk about um, salvation. But here, Paul is talking to them about the kingdom of God. He's not doing the faith salvation stuff, or, or well, as we'll get to, I think he sort of is, but he's hanging his argument on this idea of the kingdom of God. And you know who else talked a lot about Jesus? All right, I just gave it away. Talked a lot about the kingdom? Jesus. <sighs> Sunday school answer. Jesus used this idea, the kingdom of God, as kind of the focus of his, of his teaching ministry. He talked about the kingdom of God a lot. Now, maybe you're wondering, what's up with that? What's up with that? Why is it? Why is that? Because, you know, we don't really talk about kingdom of God that much. Well, I guess some churches do. But I, I think in generally uh, evangelical churches and 2023 don't do it that much. Um, is it a problem, though? Is it a problem that we don't have this, this, this metaphor, this language, this idea of talking about the gospel, this kingdom of God? Uh, and my answer is, nah, but maybe. All right, very articulate. Nah, but maybe. All right, so let's, well, let's start with nah, okay? So the reason why I don't think this is a big deal is... I don't think we always need to talk about the kingdom of God because while Paul and Jesus did use that language, um, and, and that's, that's, that's totally, totally true and legitimate, but when they did talk about the kingdom of God, it was always, or at the very least, almost always to a Jewish audience. 
when Paul and Jesus are going out and talking about the kingdom of God, they're, they're explaining, he's, they are explaining the gospel to a Jewish audience. They're doing um, what pastors call contextualizing the gospel. Speaking the message in a way that would make sense to the people who are hearing. And the way that would make sense, help, help Jewish people make sense of the gospel is by using this kingdom language. Because, I mean, we, we know that Paul went around preaching to, to, to Jewish people all the time. We know from other places that Paul's message actually predominantly, before it was about the kingdom, was this claim that Jesus is the Messiah. Like, that is what we, he, he like, the thing that he's like, if I'm going to insist on one thing, it's that Jesus is the Messiah. And my guess is that the first time that Paul came into Ephesus and he went into the synagogue and began to reason with the Jews, he was talking to and explaining to them the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one that these Jewish people have been waiting for, the Savior, that they, as reading in the Old Testament, they would have realized that this is the one God tells us to be looking for. And that would have been his message to them. Right, and we see him do that in synagogues all the time. Acts 18.5, Acts 17.23, and that's just like the, the previous two chapters, and he does that all throughout the book of Acts. He, he goes around teaching them that Jesus is the Messiah. So Paul came to Ephesus, like the first time, and no doubt he argued and reasoned with them about Jesus and why he was the Messiah. But I can imagine that as he did that and as he kind of made his case and they said, you know, some, this kind of makes sense. This kind of fits in with Scripture that Jesus fulfills all the things that a Messiah would do. But I can also imagine they would say, ask, ask some serious questions like, well, if he's the Messiah, then like, what, like, like we were kind of expecting the Messiah to come and bring us kind of a political salvation, to free us from Rome, to take off the bonds of oppression. And I mean, that was our expectation of what God was going to be doing as he brought his kingdom and he brought this Messiah. And this doesn't seem like, like we're still here in Rome, the Roman Empire. We're still here and, and Caesar is still Lord. So how is Jesus Lord while Caesar's Lord? What's up with this kingdom that we thought the Messiah was bringing? Is this, like, can it be that Jesus is the Messiah when, when the kingdom realities around us are still the way they are? If he's the king we've been waiting for, where's the throne? be the question be asking where is the throne and so you know he's he's probably in ephesus and and, and pre preaching about the messiah and they ask these really good questions and he's like "Ooh, that is you know that is like there's something meaty there i, I have a lot to explain to you about that but then he kind of looked at his watch and said but i also have a boat to catch right so i'm just i'm I, i'm gonna like I have to leave it there but i gotta get down to jerusalem but i'm gonna come back and i'm gonna follow up and I'm going to persuade you and argue with you that there's, there's an answer to that question. Where's the throne? Like, what's up with the kingdom? What is it like that Jesus is the Messiah and yet not sitting on the throne in a way that we would be visible and he's not supplanted Caesar? Like, what's up with that? He's got an answer to that. So he, he's going to come back three months later and he's going to lay out and argue with them and reason with them and persuade them that in fact, yeah, Jesus is on the throne and he is the king and the kingdom of God is in fact among them. And so, yes, Paul teaches about the kingdom of God, but I think what he's doing when he does that, he's explaining to religious Jews who have these expectations of the Messiah, that the Messiah is going to fulfill these promises, um, and he is, he's talking to people whose religious identity, their ethnic identity, their national identity is all tied up in their expectation of what the Messiah is going to do for them as a people. 
And so he's, ex- he's explaining, coming in, he's explaining, okay, well, how does this actually work for us? And so I don't think it's a problem that when I get up and talk about Jesus, I talk about things like faith and, and salvation and repentance and not predominantly about the kingdom. Because when we're talking about Jesus, we're, we're, we're not Jewish, most of us. I'm not sure if any of us are. We're not Jewish. We're not religious Jews. And so the concept of the kingdom would probably be a, not a helpful way for us to think about the gospel for people who have never heard about it before. For people who have never heard about, about Jesus before, who, who don't have this Jewish expectation of a Messiah, we preach Jesus and we talk about faith in Jesus and we talk about this thing. And they're, they're related ideas, but we don't pre- predominantly talk about the kingdom. Because if I went down to downtown Snoqualmie and I set up a little soapbox and got a little microphone on and just, the kingdom of God, it's coming among you, people would be like, this is some theocracy craziness, right? Like that message, that language would actually get in the way of what I'm trying to say. Because in our context, kingdoms are not a thing and we don't have expectations of kings and we don't have expectation that God's going to come and set up a kingdom. Jews totally expected that. Kingdom of God language makes a lot of sense to, to them. Us here in democracy in 2023, that doesn't make much sense. So I don't think I need to use that language. On the other hand, on the other hand, the, my but maybe, I do think it is helpful for Christians to think through this kingdom of God idea much more than we, when we're thinking about it. Because it was Jesus' obsession. He talked about the kingdom of God all the time. Paul talks about the kingdom of God all the time. Not just to describe an idea that mattered to Jews, but to describe what it might look like for God to be at work in the world now and for us to experience God at work in the world now. He uses, Jesus and Paul use kingdom of God language to, to explain what it is for people to be in a relationship with God and how that kind of works its way out. Because the fact is that we who believe in Jesus, who put our faith in him, who are saved, are now, according to Jesus, in the kingdom of God. We've become entered in by faith to the kingdom of God. And I think a lot of times we could use more instruction in what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. See, the kingdom of God is probably not the best way to explain the gospel to a non-Jewish person at their first hearing, but I do think it is important for Christians and people who have who've come in and have a relationship with Jesus to, to think about what Jesus was teaching when he's talking about the kingdom of God stuff. I mean, like Matthew 4, 17, right when Jesus starts his ministry, this is what he, he went around preaching. Right when he starts his ministry, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven kingdom of God, I think those are are synonymous phrases, um, has come near, or in some translations, probably a translation you're more familiar with is, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The message, when Jesus was starting his ministry that he had for people, is repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying, like, like, the significance of my ministry and the big takeaway for you is that I'm coming and I'm opening up the kingdom. I'm establishing it. It's at hand. And you can prepare yourself to enter into that kingdom and live a life in the kingdom of God through this work, the only work, which really is a non-work, of repentance. 
You come in in repentance and you come in in faith and then you'll start to live in the kingdom. It's not a surprise, I'm sure, but I like how Dallas Willard says it, okay? Um, okay, this is it's sort of a, a long quote from him, but I, I think he gives kind of, kind of fleshes out what it looks like for us to be in the kingdom of God in, in a helpful way. He says, you see, in human affairs, we have to understand that the only people who really are well off are people who are alive in the kingdom of God. It's basically Jesus' message. The kingdom of God is the range of God's effective will. It is where what God wants done is done, and we're invited to live there now. That's why the Lord's prayer is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're invited into this kingdom that's come. When we say repent, that word, which the Greek word is metanoiate, means think about your thinking. Most human thinking is organized around how can I get my way and run my kingdom? And Jesus comes and says, forget that, fella. <laughs> There's a better way. Dallas Willard was an old dude. I loved him. <laughs> um, that's metanoiate. That's repentance. Doesn't mean you get down and cry. You probably will if you start thinking about how wrong you've been. But the main thing is that you said, this is wonderful news. I can now live in the kingdom of God. And all of Jesus' teachings are predicated on that. That's why all this talk about birds and flowers and, and all the images like that Jesus used to talk about the kingdom of God, it's not just holy nonsense. That's sober reality. And in every respect, when we talk about the with God life, we have to make sure that we're carrying this beyond flowery language and we're referring to something that really happens, that we know what it is, and that that is and the interactive presence of God in our life. What, what, what Jesus taught these Jews who had this idea, oh, the kingdom of God is going to be like a political movement. It's going to be great. He says, no, the kingdom of God is at hand, and I'm opening it up for you. But it's like the presence of God in your life, and you're going to have an interactive relationship with him. And this whole temple thing where God is distant and far off and you know, kind of sort of afraid of him. Happy he's here, but nah, I don't want to get too close. Like, that's going to go away. And instead, we are going to have the kingdom of God at hand. The, the, the temple is going to be, like, gone, and God's presence is going to be with his people. God's kingdom is, in fact, now because of what Jesus has done. He said, it's at hand. It's coming. The kingdom of God is coming among you because of Jesus' ministry. Because we now, through faith, can have access into grace and into the presence of God, into a life with God. Wherever God's people are, they're there by faith in him. And then God's spirit is there, and his kingdom is moving forward, and his will is being done in people's lives, and we're having this, this inward transformation, and then we're also effecting outward transformation as we're just trusting God. And the church is sent out into the world to proclaim the gospel, which is forgiveness and grace and the openness of the kingdom because of what Jesus has done, the av availability of God's presence to anyone who would come by faith, in humility, in repentance, understanding what has been given and what the uh, salvation that Jesus has effected by dying on the cross, taking away sin, and, and the significance of it. So anyone can come and receive that. And as God's people go out with that message, they are being kingdom people. They're invading into the world with God's kingdom. They're going along with the Holy Spirit and advancing the kingdom. 
We're not just sent out with a message, a, a set of propositions that we might believe. We're sent out with the presence of God, made available to us because of what Jesus did. Ephesians 2 Right? Because Paul needs to remind them of this later. He writes them again. Like, Let me remind you of a few things. Ephesians 2, 17 through 21, he says, He came, that is, Jesus came and proclaimed good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, by which he means Jews and Gentiles. The far away are the, the Gentiles, the near are the, are the Jews. Peace to both of them. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. The kingdom of God is not an abstract concept. The kingdom of God is a kingdom in which, by faith, you are now a citizen of. You are now in it. And it means that you can have access to the Father by the Spirit according to faith in the Son. And you can have an interactive life with God. Even if you were far off, even if you have no idea that the kingdom was even a thing, like the Jews expected it. Non-Jews have, that's like a, a foreign concept. Those who are far off and those who are near are now entering in by faith, and we are now citizens and saints, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And the result is that we're not strangers, but we're in the kingdom, and we're experiencing the kingdom. Romans 14, 17, Paul is, is arguing with people in Rome, and they're, they're trying to, to say, oh, well, what God really wants is for us to obey a bunch of laws, and he keeps going back and forth to them, and he explains to them, no, it's by faith, and he says this, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, so it's not about the laws that we have around food, but it is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What Paul's message and what Jesus' message was about the kingdom is that it is an invitation into what is truly real. It is an invitation into righteousness and peace and joy in the Spirit. Because of what the Son does, we can have an interactive life with God because of what's been given to us. The veil is torn. We talked about it on Sunday. The veil is torn. God's presence is among the people. It's not hiding out far away in, 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 in the temple any longer, but God is with people. And kingdom people are those who are living, who are enabled to live, invited to live in the reality of the kingdom, in the reality of God's effective will, in his will. They're made righteous by Jesus. We stand according to grace. We're given peace that surpasses understanding because of the Holy Spirit working within us, reminding us that, yes, truly we have come into salvation, into a life with God because of what Jesus has done. There's a reality to it, and the reality to it is resulting in joy, joy of just being so surprised that God is so kind and so merciful, and we were so mistaken about what he wanted from us. He actually just wants us to trust in him, and we can do that. That's totally within our power. I can trust in God. I can put my hope in him. And as I do, I find that just joy wells up in me. That's the shape and pattern of the Christian life. We've known it for 2,000 years. 
We just have to keep on stepping into it, keep on trusting Jesus and find it to be true. What an invitation. Life in the kingdom, life interacting with God, praying, getting alone, seeking his face, and actually hearing from him. The Holy Spirit actually like bringing comfort and peace like in a private prayer moment or in the church where other people are just saying, you know, I was praying about you and I just like want to encourage you in this. Like, like we're invited into this world where God is at work. We get to experience the reality of it. It's a reality thing. And as we go along, in the book of Acts, man, the reality gets really real. It gets really real, okay? So there's some wild things. The Bible is just crazy sometimes. This is a really crazy thing going on here. Okay, so let's, let's jump in. God uh, was, perf- oh no, I missed a spot. Okay, when some came, uh, but when, when some became hardened and would not believe, slandering the way in front of the crowd, he withdrew from them, Paul withdrew from them, taking the disciples and conducted discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. And God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hand, so that even face cloths or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick, and the disease left them, and evil spirits came out of them. And now some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists who also attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over who had evil spirits saying, I command you by Jesus that Paul preaches. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. Then the evil spirit answered them and says, well, I know Jesus and I recognize Paul, but who are you? And then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, and prevailed against them so that they ran out of the house naked and wounded. And when this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. Strange things are afoot at the Circle K. I think I have... A gift. Oh, it didn't show up. I should have checked it. I had the picture of Bill and Ted up there and everything. It says, strange things are... None of my jokes are landing today. It's so disappointing. Maybe the Lord's saying, you don't need the jokes. <laughs> okay, Lord. <laughs> oh, man, the Bible is crazy. Strange stuff in the Bible. And we're not going to go into demonology and possession today. Like, we're, we're not, we're not going to deep dive into that. Like, we could do that sometime. I just, I just we don't have time. <laughs> and I feel like there's something even more important in this text. Because see what happens, right? Paul goes in. He starts preaching the kingdom of God for three months. He's there teaching in the synagogue. Finally, they just are saying, you know what? Like, this is a little too weird. We don't get it. Um, and Paul probably at that point is like, wow, three months. That's a record. Normally, they've stoned me by now, and, uh, but he, he, he stays there uh, for as long as they can. They finally kick him out, and what he does then is, 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 is rare, and it's, again, the high watermark, I think, of the book of Acts. Um, he um, begins, he, he gets kicked out, and he decides, I'm not going to leave the city of Ephesus, because actually, there's a lot of non-Jews who want to hear about what's going on here. You know, and there's even some of these Jews who are in the synagogue who want, to, who want to learn more about the kingdom of God. And so he takes two years, 
And for two years, he rents the lecture hall of Tyrannus. It's like just, I don't know, some just like public community space um, in Ephesus. And he rents it, and he gathers there every single day. And he is teaching non-Jews and Jews about the kingdom of God, teaching them about the gospel, teaching them about what's going on um, and what, what Jesus' what Jesus's ministry is all about. Um, and crazy stuff starts to happen as this message goes out and as people are stepping into the kingdom, crazy things begin to happen. There's miracles going on, right? People are being healed, even to the point where people are stealing Paul's hanky, you know, his little hanky or his apron, like his old shirt. They're stealing it and they're bringing it to sick people. And as those sick people touch it, they're getting healed. I can't explain how that works. I have no idea how that works. But these people are, are like really seeing that God is demonstrating the power of his kingdom all around Ephesus. And people are beginning to understand, whoa, there's something really special and unique going on in these people and in these believers. And there are miracles happening. And uh, there are people who, uh, who don't believe in Jesus, and they're getting into it, like people who aren't Christians. There's groups of people going around trying to exercise demons, like kick out evil spirits in the name of Jesus, but they're not people who believe in Jesus or follow Jesus. They're not people who have come in and trusted Jesus. There's actually like a group of seven sons of Sceva. Sons of a Jewish high priest who travel around, they do their exorcism show, and they get some money, right? And they say, hey, this Jesus name seems to be pretty powerful. We've noticed you Ephesians, like, like, there's some powerful stuff that happens when people pray in the name of Jesus. And so they start praying and casting out demons, or trying to cast out demons, in the name of Jesus. And the demon looks at them and just says, hmm, like, normally that would work. Like, if the person who were casting me out in the name of Jesus actually had any idea who Jesus was and wasn't just trying to make money, like, I would have some respect for that. But I don't have any idea who you are. You're not a person who knows me. And then they, they, <laughs> the one man jumps on the seven of them and beats them up and overpowers them. Amazing. Amazing, right? And again, like, I, I'm not going to go into and explain how that works or whatever, but it's wild. And the result of all that, like it says in verse 17, it became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus both Jews and Greeks, and they became afraid. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. So, as non-believers in Ephesus, they see this reality of the kingdom playing out. They see that not only are these believers into Jesus, but like something else is going on too. The whole spiritual world is like, afraid of Jesus. Like, like when people come and pray in the name of Jesus, stuff happens. And like demons are cast out and people are healed. And, and people in Ephesus, they become afraid. They become afraid of the reality of what they're seeing. And, and it must be a really serious business, this whole believing in Jesus thing. There's something about Jesus. We don't understand it. But we're going to tread lightly here because there's a demonstrable reality when we call in the name of Jesus. And they're afraid. They're afraid. But I think there's something even more interesting in the text here as we go along to this next section. Right? The non-believers are afraid. But believers react in a different way. Okay? So this is their reaction. Many who had become believers came and confessing, and they were disclosing their practices. 
while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. And so they calculated their value, and they found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. In this way, the word of the Lord spread and prevailed. So Paul is there teaching two years. Amazing things are happening. The reality of the kingdom is just on display for everybody to see. Jesus' name is powerful. The unbelievers, people who don't understand what's going on, they, 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 they at least fear it and they respect it. But those who believe, I mean, their reaction is even more powerful. Ephesus was a, a very uh, cosmopolitan, wealthy place in, in the Roman Empire. Um, it was full of, of magic, right? There were people who practiced pagan rituals, and um, they had a lot of values stored up in these things. And as they, these believers, right, they were sort of hedging their bets, let's say. They were saying, okay, we believe in Jesus in the kingdom, but we're also going to keep these magic books just in case we get some serious, need some serious power, right? And then suddenly, as, as the kingdom is moving forward, and as, as, as these people are seeing, man, the name of Jesus is so powerful, and amazing things happen when, when people are stepping into the kingdom, these believers just like, they grow fearful, but not in the same way. Not in the same way as the, Ephes the Ephesians who didn't know Jesus. Like the people who didn't know Jesus, like they're just afraid because they don't understand. The believers, they come to understand, and they come to a place of fear, but it's not, it's not the kind of fear that the, the, the non-believers have. You know what it is? It's, it's FOMO. You know what FOMO is? Fear of missing out, right? Because they, they understand we are in the kingdom. Like, we actually have trusted in and believed in this Jesus. We're actually the people who said, yeah, that makes sense. I, I really want to respond to this truth. And I want to put my faith in, my trust in, my hope in Jesus. And they went into that, right? And they're, they're in it. They're saved by grace. They're experiencing this life with God. They're learning from Paul, learning all about the kingdom of God, learning to pray, learning to pray for people, learning to walk with Jesus and trust in Jesus. And as things get serious and as all this spiritual stuff starts to happen, they don't have the fear that the Ephesians have. They're like, something crazy is going on here. They have a fear of, oh, we were invited into something real and dynamic and serious and interactive. And the truth is, if, if we're honest, they come to realize, if we're honest, we've been playing both sides. Uh, we understand we're invited to the kingdom, but we've also kept our passport to another place. And it's like idolatry going on. They've been, they've been not trusting God, not fully putting their, their stock in what Jesus has to say. And they, they come and see all this, this power stuff going on, and they're convicted by the Spirit. And it's not that they're like, oh, God's going to be so mad at us. It's that oh, if Jesus will do this, how much more, how much greater, how much more awesome and, 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 and more clear will he like be, be bringing his kingdom forward? And how much greater things will he do if we actually just really to just fully trust him and throw everything else out and just say, Jesus, we're disciples. 
We're people of faith now. We are going to burn our bridges. We're not going back to the old place and trusting in the old things and trusting in ourselves any longer. We are just burning that stuff. Even though it costs us a lot of money, that stuff was valuable. They just said, this stuff is wrong. It's keeping us from the real thing that we have in you, Jesus. It's keeping us from enjoying the reality of an interactive life with you because our hearts are divided. And so they don't come in, oh, God's going to be so mad. They know that God's not mad. They're forgiven in the name of Jesus, invited into something, something greater. Their fear is not a fear of an angry God. It's fear of missing out on all the amazing things that God wants, God wants to do in them. <sighs> Such a good kind of fear to have. And that is my prayer for us. You know, um, I'm 38 years old. I have, Lord willing, a lot of life left. And for 38 years, my life with Jesus, my life in the kingdom, has been nothing but repenting of idols. And that's your life in Jesus, too. Because in my heart, though I know so many things up here, I don't always know Jesus like I should. Like a knowledge that's intimate and grounded in reality and marked by my total trust, which is what I'm called to. In him. That's what kingdom people are. They're people who have said, I understand I have a lot of power in my own kingdom, but I cede my kingdom and my authority to you, Jesus, because I'm going to be in your kingdom. So much of my life is just recognizing, eh, I'm still king of my castle. I'm still sitting on the throne of my life. And I don't see it all at once. Like, that's it. These Ephesians probably didn't think the magic was a problem. But suddenly they start to see the Lord moving in their life, and they're like, oh, wait a minute. I'm, I'm going to miss out unless I go and just give it all to Jesus. They don't want to miss out. And my prayer for us here at I-90 is that we would start to just do that work, like the work of just saying, okay, what am I really trusting in? And Jesus, do I, do I really trust in you? Do I really have this confidence that you're at work all around me? Do I really have this confidence that I can entrust my job, my family, my finances, my reputation, my whatever to you? I hope that we can pray about that. And look at, how did the Ephesians get there? Not by navel-gazing, not by beating themselves up, but by opening their eyes and seeing, huh, This seems kind of real. It sort of seems like this Jesus character really is Messiah, Lord, and his kingdom really is serious. And it's just a repentance of blindness. They were blind to it. They were blind to the ways in which their own heart was just like resisting the kingdom. Blind to it. Repentance is just this opening my eyes and just saying, okay, I see where I've erred. I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to Jesus. I'm going I'm to get seek more of him by faith. Um, worship team and Griffin. My friend Griffin is going to come up. I totally put him on the spot. I texted him. I said, Griffin, you're going to close the service. Gave him no direction. Because we trust the Holy Spirit's going to, as he prays and just leads us in prayer, he's going to lead him in some way. So 
because the kingdom of God is real, and the Holy Spirit is real, and the Holy Spirit doesn't work just in me. I don't know. I, honestly, in some ways, I think he works the least in me. <laughs> I'm like, well, I am a doofus all the time. Like, I'm so glad I'm surrounded by people who really like, know how to trust, and, and that encourages me to, to, to leave behind the old stuff, because right? I'm so head, full of head knowledge. And I love Griffin here, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to insult Griffin a little bit, because he'll come up here and insult himself, right? He's going to come and just say, I'm, I'm just, you know. but here's the thing. Holy Spirit, thank you for what you've done in, in Griffin, because um, he's a guy who takes the kingdom seriously. He's a guy who takes it seriously, who demands something of himself faith-wise. So that's not your glory, Griffin. It's not. So that's, he's going to feel like, he's going to be like, I'm not anything special. Like, I'm going to do that work for him. He's nothing special. He's a guy who trusts Jesus, and he's going to pray for us and just encourage us for a minute here as we, as we close out here in worship. Okay. So what's really funny about that is that I've been praying since he asked me to close this. I was like, okay, God, what do you want me to do? You know, are you going to give me a verse? Are you going to give me something to say? And two minutes ago, I feel like he said, no, you're just going to be quiet and pray and let me do the work. So I guess that's what we'll do. So. Spirit of holiness, we ask that you would uh, come and work within us. Um, show us what it is that's in our lives uh, that is causing separation between ourselves and you. here on a Sunday morning because we want to seek you, um, we want to know you more, in reality we just want to be servants of you, uh, you are the God most high, uh, you are the God who is love, and yet we get distracted by the most ridiculous shiny objects that come up. <laughs> Sorry. I, I feel like we're fish. Like anything that's sparkly that shines in front of us, we run after. Um, meanwhile, you're there and waiting for us to come to you to have a relationship. So I ask that you would show us what it is that we're chasing that might be wonderful in this moment, but that doesn't actually lead to you, that doesn't glorify you and doesn't further your kingdom. some reason you have led us here uh, to a point where we get to come before the only God who is worth worshiping, the only God that is worthy of praise. I ask that you would help us to be thankful for that and to seek you. And we ask these things in the, the mighty, powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior.